Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it really is a, a special thing to have baptisms take place. And if you want to know how to pray for Trinity, I would honestly say pray for more baptisms. You know, because isn't that a picture of God on the move, that God is changing people's lives, he's transforming families, he's pulling people into a family. And that's exactly what we want to be about. This is what Jesus was about. This is what he did with his life. He said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I want to be about what Jesus is about. I want this church to experience a radical renewal. And what a time to remember that this is the point, purpose, and power of the gospel. It's the point of being a community. We are on mission together. If you're new to Trinity, welcome. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome here. We have all been in the space of saying, I'm not yet a Christian. And then God breaks in and he changes your space. He changes your mental map. And you begin to think in terms of the gospel. You think in terms of the God who made you. And it changes your trajectory. But we want to be a church that's talking like that, praying about that, and celebrating, especially when young people say, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life. I'm going to need your help to do it. Because honestly, Christianity is hard. Like I said, Christmas can also be hard. Many of you have been in the church for a long time, and you get to this season of Advent, looking forward to Christmas and December 24th and all of the celebration, the food and the festivities, but we sometimes forget about the wonder of Christmas. We're wondering more about what we're going to eat than celebrating the arrival of Jesus. I am in that boat often, thinking about sentiment, thinking about tradition, thinking about visiting family, and I forget about the reality of the arrival of the Savior of the world. Wonder gets lost. But see, the, the trouble is we live from our wonder. Whatever you are wondering over, whatever is giving that spark to your life is controlling you. If that wonderful piece of your life is a relationship, then you are going to live in terms of that relationship. It will ultimately control you. 
right? If money is at the center of your life, if, if it's what's animating your decisions, if it's coloring in your mental maps, then it has sparked wonder in your life. It is the wonder thing in your life, and it's controlling you. The question is, where does Jesus fit into that? Because if he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one and only Son of God who made his way onto our planet, then he's got to spark wonder. And that's exactly what we're doing in this space every single Sunday, and then prayerfully throughout the week, is we're helping each other with the wonder aspect, the wonderful nature of Christianity. Have you forgotten? Have you gotten lost? I have. Help me, friend. Help me along in this journey of following Jesus. There are things warring for your affections, warring for your wonder. And we've come here to go into this series that we've entitled The Prayers of Advent, going into the spaces and places where people prayed in reaction to the arrival of Jesus. We looked at Zechariah's prayer last week, and this week we're looking at what is probably the most well-known and most famous of those prayers. In some circles, it's entitled the Magnificat. It's the prayer of Mary as she reacts to this conversation with her cousin Elizabeth that the two of them are having a child, and they're both miraculous in their own way. And so we hope that this prayer can continue to spark wonder. Three things I'll walk you through from this text. Number one. We're going to look at God's extraordinary heart. Mary sings about it, God's extraordinary heart. Number two, God's wonderful plan. And number three, we'll finalize with looking at what it means to exalt in a wonderful God. So number one, God's extraordinary heart. Two, God's wonderful plan. And three, learning to exalt in a wonderful God. If you're new to Christianity, unfamiliar with the Christmas narrative, Luke chapter... How we doing? Told them we might have to switch mics if needed. We'll give that maybe one more try. I don't know. I could stand very still. It would become an, an awkward sermon, wouldn't it? But all right. Let's keep going for a moment. Mary's story begins earlier in Luke 1, 26 through 38. If you have a Bible or a phone app, you can glance there. We are introduced to a young teenage woman. She's from a backwater village called Nazareth. This is not a place that's desirable in any way. You would not go to the Middle East and say, sign me up for Nazareth. Nobody's going there. This is where she's from. She is likely between 15 and 17 years old. Consider that. She has been betrothed or promised. She's really engaged to a man by the name of Joseph. These are simple country folk. They're not sophisticated. They're not educated. They are poor members of poor families from an undesirable part of Israel. Now, a little bit more about Mary. We can tell from Mary's song in verses 46 and following. That is the Magnificat. This is where she erupts in prayer and song. Verses 46 and following, you can tell from what she is verbalizing that she grew up in the traditions of her people. She knew the scriptures quite well. Most Jewish children did. And she understood that the narrative that she was living in was present. It was part of her people's tradition. They were waiting for the arrival of a savior, a redeemer. Somebody's going to take off the oppressive thumb of any other nation, any other regime, any other tyrant. They are waiting for somebody to come and redeem them. This is part of the, the rehearsal day after day. God is coming. God is good. God is faithful. It's been 400 years. They have been waiting a long time. She knew that God was going to keep his promises, but she also knew that her people had been waiting. And so when the angel Gabriel shows up from the throne of God, 
into the living room of Mary, you have to know that she is so surprised. I mean, there's no word for it. She knows the scripture. She knows that God has promised a Messiah, but she's saying, now you are showing up in my home to tell me, little Mary, from a backwater called Nazareth, somewhere around 15 to 17 years old, we got no education, we have no influence, we have no clout, that you have, for some reason, chosen me to be the mother of the Savior of the world? Come, Come again? Right? This doesn't make sense. Let's switch it. Thank you. Test. Okay. She has questions. Maybe that's part of the point of this narrative. She has questions. How am I going to have a baby? She is an unwed virgin, long promised to the son of a local blue-collar family. But look at verse 35. The verse 35 tells us, of course, how this is going to happen. The angel answered her question. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Oh, and here's a sign. Your cousin Elizabeth, who is way beyond childbearing years, she is now six months pregnant. See, and Mary replies, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It is a profound statement of surrender and faith. How come? Because she essentially forfeits her social and emotional well-being. When she says, let it be done to me. You're telling me that a baby is going to come into my womb, that I'm going to bear the Savior of the world, that it's not going to be Joseph's baby, but the Holy Spirit is going to be part of this mysterious process, and I'm going to have to go into town. I'm going to have to go get water. I'm going to have to see my friends at the library and the bakery, and they're going to go, what's going on with that belly? What's going on with Mary? And she's going to tell them, it's not me and Joseph. It's me and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to go, mm-hmm, right. I mean, but isn't that what you would do? Isn't that what you would say? Tell me a story again. Tell me some other better lie than that. It's been 400 years. You're telling me God showed up in your living room and told you, Mary, that you're going to be the, the, the mother of the Savior of the world? This is not going to make sense. All sorts of layers of social shame, not to mention the immense pain that this is going to cause to her beloved, Joseph. Think about this story. Mary has this conversation, and she rushes to see Elizabeth by faith probably takes her three or four days to get to Elizabeth's home. And the moment Mary enters their home, the moment that Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, what she says is, the baby inside of me is leaping for joy. She knows that the Holy Spirit is already animating John. Remember that these two are cousins, John the Baptist and Jesus. John has a purpose. He's a forerunner. He's supposed to make people excited. And you can tell when Mary shows up in his life, he's already getting excited. John is ready to go. He's raring. I mean, he's leaping inside of her belly. And so as she feels this experience, she also articulates something to Mary. She begins to promise and to prophesy. And what happens when these beautiful promises come out of Elizabeth's mouth, Mary herself begins to sing because she knows that it's all true. I mean, she's been thinking to herself, there is no way this is true. Gabriel didn't really show up in my home. This is not real. I got to walk three or four days and go see Elizabeth. And the moment she sees her cousin, she starts to sing because she knows, man, this is crazy. 
but God is moving in our lives in this way, and he has chosen me. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The King James says it like this, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. And here's what Mary is singing about. Mary is singing about the simple fact that Christ comes to those who know their need. That's what she's saying. The Messiah is for those who know their need. He comes to those who are unable to secure salvation for themselves, who look in their rearview mirror and know where they've come from. They know their storyline. They know that they can't secure redemption for themselves. Jesus is not interested in self-salvation projects. He's interested in people who understand their humble state. I need you, Jesus. Come and break into my world and to my life. Now let me break this down a little bit for you. Christianity is not just different from the operating systems of the world, though of course it is. I talk to the students about that. Things are going to war for your affection. doesn't matter what age you are. You could be 16, you could be 95. Something is warring for your heart. It's not easy to be a Christian. And you have this distinction between the values of the kingdom of Jesus and the values of the world. But can I also say that Christianity is also distinct from the operating system of religion? Oftentimes we can see the distinction between black and white, whether it's been written, whether it's been colored, whether it's been painted. You see the distinction. You can see the, the difference between those two colors. Even if you're colorblind, one side is black, the other side is white. We see that there's a difference, but what you can't always see the difference of is between off-white and white. Because there's a shade of difference there. At least from the outside, my eyes might get confused. But remember, this is the key, from the outside. From the outside looking in, I get a little bit confused between that color palette. We've got white on one side, we've got off-white on the other. And sometimes we assume that Christianity and religion are just the difference between white and off-white. But let me say, nothing could be more different. What fuels them is so different. Religion says, how should I live in order to receive the love of God? How should I live in order to get it? Christianity says, how should I now live that I have, since I have already received the love of God? And somebody goes, well, aren't all religions the same? In no way. See, the heartbeat of religion says, I have to earn, prove, and perform. The heart of Christianity says, somebody's done that for you. His name is Jesus. He's performed. He's proven. It's all about him. One is fueled by accomplishment and success. The other is fueled by grace. Consider two flowers. I have a black thumb. My wife, my wife has a really black thumb. Sorry, honey. Okay. We like to kill things, but let's assume we could grow them, okay? And we have a beautiful pot. The flower's growing. It's got deep roots. We've nurtured it. It's been in the right amount of sunlight. It's got the right amount of nutrients. It's got the right amount of water. It's going to grow well. It's going to be strong. But let's assume we get a little bit of this uh, rain, we call it here, a little sprinkle. You see the side of the road where you see things growing up, large plants, small plants, but you see the exact same flower on the side of the road that you have planted in your home. And you say there's no difference between the two. One's been well nurtured and one just sprang up. But if you did your research and you looked, you know that that plant on the side of the road, while beautiful for a moment, it's not going to last that long because the seed made its way down into a little crack. It has no roots. It has no foundation. It's there for the moment, then it's gone the next. 
See, and consider a human being and not just a flower. From the outside, you're looking at two individuals who are being good people. They're doing the right thing. They're performing religiously. They're doing their duties. They look very similar, a Christian on one side and somebody who's not a Christian on the other. It looks the exact same. They're loving God and neighbor. But one is living from this perspective of I have to get God's love, and the other is saying I already have it. But the behaviors are the same. And somebody would say, well, that's the difference between off-white and white. But now you begin to see that they're actually radically different, more like black and white. They're not the same at all. Brennan Manning, he says this. If Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight with the knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton hidden in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with the hidden agenda, the mixed motives, and the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would feel his acceptance and forgiveness. How did you think he was going to end that statement? I would feel ashamed and I must hide. If he knew everything about my life and my heart, the decisions I've made and the things I dream about, if Jesus knew that and he showed up in my life, there's no way he'd love me. See, but Brendan Manning understands the gospel. He says, when you show that to this God, you don't have to perform. You get a glimpse of his extraordinary heart, his love for people like you and me. Mary sings that the mighty one has done great things for her. She does not say, I've done great things for the mighty one. You feel the difference? God has done mighty things for me. I don't have to do mighty things for him to be loved. Manning goes on. He says, are you moody and melancholy because you are still striving for the perfection that comes from your own efforts, not from faith in Jesus Christ? Are you shocked and horrified when you fail? I have been there. Are you really aware that you don't have to change, grow, or be good to be loved? Wow. Have you experienced down deep in your life and in your heart what Mary is singing about, this extraordinary, unexpected love of God? Let me take this deeper in part two. God's wonderful plan. Glance at verse 48, somewhere in the middle. Verse 48, it says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in, the, in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away. I think sometimes those of us who are part of the Christian narrative, part of the church, follow Jesus, assume that because God is so great, that he is attracted to great people, great things. God is so mighty, he's not going to want to be a part of my life. He's attracted to the people who are successful, the people who are going and accomplishing. He's after the ones who are on top. This is so easily our natural assumption See, but God's wonderful plan is so much better than that. As an example, the Apostle Paul, he knows this well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what he writes beginning in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. He's talking to Christians. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Can you imagine on your last day showing up in heaven and boasting in front of the maker of heaven and earth about the things that you have done on planet earth? I mean, you were going to go, I had the agenda. I got the list already. I'm ready to tell you what I did with my life. And you were going to see Jesus face to face. He's going to show you his hands. And he's going to go, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? I have given my life for you. Do you think that I need your list? I don't need your help. I have come to save you. John Piper says, Jesus, God, chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, like a forgotten town called Nazareth and an unwed maiden carrying a child conceived without a human father to bring to nothing things that are. I want you to consider the arc of the Jesus story for a moment. Very soon, in fact, next week, we're going to be looking at the angels who are announcing that Mary's son, the Savior of the world, has been born. And we're going to stop and ask, who him? The son of a peasant? As we go through the Jesus story, early in his ministry, people will claim that he is a prophet. And many are going to say, who him? That man from Nazareth, they rejected him. Why would we accept him? And of course, people now are announcing him as the Savior of the world. And people are going to stop and say, who him? That man on the cross? You're telling me that he's the center of all things. See, the kingdom that Jesus announces is a different type of kingdom because he is fundamentally a different type of king, which means that the plan for the world and for your life is way more wonderful than you may imagine. Friends, when Jesus emerged on the public scene and his ministry began, you notice that he wasn't a tyrant sitting on a throne. He was a servant sitting on the ground. You should be saying, what type of king is he? Jesus spends time with lepers. He spends time with people who are untouchable. He gets in trouble with authorities because he's having meals with sinners. He's canceling meetings with important people like Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and he's engaging with children. Who is this guy? Who is this king? What is he about? He's a different type of king with a different type of kingdom that flips things upside down. See, and the arrival of Jesus is the ultimate pivot point in human history and in potentially and in your life and in your heart how come because when you truly encounter the Jesus of the scriptures you come to know deep down that your power your prestige your work ethic your beauty your success are not the reasons that God loves you he simply loves you because he loves you and when you feel that in the interior of your life I promise you, it changes things. It changes your perspective on your past, your present, your boss, the people you're trying to vie for their affection, their attention, their approval. All of that begins to shift and to change in your life. As I mentioned, Jesus is not interested in self-salvation projects. If he was, then why did he show up? Now, Jesus, like a lot of you, but like a little bit of me, no. No, don't I have to do something to get your faith? I got to be a little bit better than the next? No, you don't. You need to stop and surrender and say, he has reckoned the humble estate of my life. I cannot save myself. He's come for me. Hallelujah. His arrival is good. 
See, when you experience grace like this, it begins to topple the kingdoms of this world, the powers that ultimately war against human dignity and joy because they turn you into a performance transaction. You will be loved if you perform. That's religion. You want to be a transaction? I don't want to be a transaction. Have you ever felt used? Have you ever felt manipulated? If you do enough, if you're good enough, if you're religious enough, you find it in the church all the time. The church is not immune from this. But we have to repent of that and say, Jesus, we have gotten off track. We've made our performance the center of it. Come and redeem and change me. Grace and grace alone, mercy and mercy alone. And if we live with that as the fuel in the engine, it changes everything. Can somebody say amen? Amen. 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 It changes everything. And Jesus says to you, even while you were my enemies, I set my affection upon your life. I have come for you. The good news of the gospel and of Mary's song is that because of Jesus, the world is being flipped upside down. Look at verse 51. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away. It is an incredible reversal of the values of our world. And this is God's wonderful plan. It's a plan where nobody's become somebody's, where those who are on the outside are welcomed in, where the sinner is treated with dignity and respect and they are forgiven. How does all of this work? How does the reversal happen? It happens because of Jesus who takes your place, the ultimate reversal. Jesus says, I will die in their place and they will get my love and affection. I will take their sin and they will get my righteousness. And when this transaction begins to happen and all of it's confirmed on the third day when he comes out of the grave, he goes, everything I talked about, everything I pointed to, everything I promised, everything I said is ultimately true. God's wonderful plan is not going to be manipulated by the power plays and power brokers of today. Jesus wins through death. The ultimate reversal. Jesus vanquishes sin by being vanquished himself, not by standing on a throne and smiting everybody who's against him, but by being smitten, by being smote, by dying. This is the reversal of it all. God's wonderful plan to shift the axis of meaning and hope and morality in his kingdom. And you see it. Could it be true? That's what Mary's wondering. Could it be true? And she visits Elizabeth. And she has this baby begin to grow. And she's looking at that thing going, it's true. God has come for the lowly, not those on top. Let me wrap up with this. God's extraordinary heart, God's wonderful plan. And then thirdly and quickly, exalting in a wonderful God. Look at verse 46. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And you must be saying to yourself, it must have been easy for Mary to surrender and to believe by faith. She had the son of God miraculously begin growing in her belly. She had God inside of her. If I had God inside of me, men, I know that's weird, okay, but if I had God growing inside of me, I could believe in our own way. Yes, different, but in our own way, isn't that exactly what God promises to us? That God will be in you? That God will take 
of habitation in your life and begin to grow inside of you? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. I've got two more. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Isn't that exactly what you're saying to yourself? Man, if I could just have what Mary had, then I'd believe. God is so good to you, so gracious and condescending. He goes, I'll live in your life. I will grow in your heart. I will make my home in your heart, in your spirit. Who's a God like that? The fullness of God in you, it's available. The question I have for you is, what is your soul magnifying? What is your soul magnifying? Because if it's not Jesus, you may be able to cut a tune for a moment, but in time, that song will get weak and heavy and burdened. For a moment, it might seem like that flower that's burst out of nowhere. It might seem beautiful and good, but I promise you, if you live long enough, it's going to get heavy and it's going to wither. Is Jesus the song of your spirit? Is grace and mercy flowing out of you? Do you want it to? Then knit yourself to more people who say, I want it too. I want to be a part of what Jesus is up to in the world. I want to be his church. I want to live on mission. What is your soul magnifying? What is it making much of? What is it found of supreme value? Jesus is worth it. You can sing. And Jesus is inviting you to his family. He's inviting you to a meal. In just a moment, we get to eat in honor of him. What a beautiful season to do that. But as we eat today... Take a moment to think about your own life, your own heart, and what you magnify, what you put at the center, and maybe it's the best time, the perfect day, to say, Jesus, come and make your home in me again. You have come to our planet to find me. I want to follow you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your affection. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this incredible gift the arrival of the Son of God on our planet, it's not mythology. It's not fairy tale. There's simply too much evidence, even in the secular world, that says somebody named Jesus of Nazareth changed history 2,000 years ago. But change my history today. Change our history today. Holy Spirit, anoint our hearts. That means just come and move. Change me, change us. So many of us have ambitions that we are magnifying. Christianity is not anti-ambition. But it does say don't make it your all. Make Jesus your center. Then ambition makes sense. When he's my king, ambition doesn't have to be. Money doesn't have to be. Family or friends don't have to be. A relationship doesn't have to be. The pain of my past will no longer control me because Jesus has set me free to confess it and to find help. So, oh Lord, through this meal, meet with us, change us, transform us. Christmas is the greatest season of all because Jesus, the Savior, has come. In his name we pray, amen.